This is the Breakfast Leadership Podcast. Boundaries or burnout, you make the choice. Here's your host, Michael Levitt. Welcome back. We're going to have a lively conversation today with Michael Gale. Hey, Michael, how are you? I'm great. I'm looking forward to this. It's a really interesting subject matter. So let's see if we can inspire people to move from construct to imagination and action at a little faster rate. Oh, definitely. And your background, you've been in some interesting industries for, for quite a long time. But today we're going to talk about what we've heard about and we've seen a lot about, and that's AI. And, and there's organizations, and we know that we're going to see a completely different world in a very short period of time. And while many people are preparing for it and they're getting ready, we're finding that many organizations and individuals aren't doing anything to get prepared for this. So let's dive right into it. And you know, what prompted you to get involved in, into this arena? Well, I've written a book on digital transformation, The Digital Helix. It's the number one selling book on digital transformation globally. It's Wall Street Journal bestseller. And there was sort of an inevitable migration from that book to a discourse about AI, because to truly digitally form an organization, maybe the sharpest point of that spear is the application of artificial intelligence at the sort of epicenter. I could have said the bowels, but I won't. But at the epicenter of an organization's DNA. So we started tracking this, gosh, five, six, seven years ago. And last year in particular, we did interesting two, three interesting pieces of research about where were people on this journey? Were they deniers? Were they accepting it, but not acting? Were they acting and failing? Or were they sort of accepting, acting, succeeding and getting results? And only 6%, just 6% of the sort of global 2000 actually believe have activated and are getting results out of, you know, sort of deep AI process. We've seen this in other work with Microsoft and IBM. So I think there's a truth here that while we all talk about it, it's a really difficult pathway to success. So this isn't sort of like turning on the key of a car and driving. It requires an almost complete re-architecture the way we think about profitable successful transformed organizations and i've seen it time and time again and even in recent history when the u.s economic recession back in 2008 and 09 organizations that were agile and were able to adapt and adjust to the new marketplace they're still around but the organizations that didn't that were stuck in their ways either were blown away or they're barely surviving. And, and even even going back to the dot-com era, embarrassed to say, you know, that was, you know, 20 years ago, but it's, it is, you know, you blink and, you know, two decades fly by. I was involved in that and it was an absolute zany time. It was fun. I'll tell you that. It was really fun to work in the IT space and just all the innovation and everything that was going on. But then it hit a plateau in the organizations that didn't have a plan going past the ping pong tables and fancy coffee. You know, those organizations are gone and have been gone where the ones like, okay, what do we want this organization to look like in the next 10 to 20 years? Those are conversations that constantly need to be had. And with AI and all the innovation that we've seen so far and the absolutely amazing stuff that we're hearing about and seeing this coming down the pipe, organizations need to get ahead of that and and start thinking, all right, how can we apply that to where we are? And sometimes they have to step outside of the box and figure out what do we need to do differently? Because how we've been doing work is not how we're going to be doing work. Yeah, there are some interesting, I mean, there's one exercise we constantly say to organizations that are outside that 6%, which is for your sector, go out and find a hundred examples 
not 95, not 102, 100 examples of where digitally transformed processes and the application of AI are changing the nature of that organization. So I'll give you a simple, a simple example of one in healthcare. So in the UK, the UK Medical Authority ran an experiment where they put 100 patients uh, in front of a AI system over the phone and 100 patients in a doctor's office. And they tracked how well diagnosed the AI patients were compared to the diagnosis delivered by the doctors actually in person, no touching or verbal and sort of visual. Well, the AI system was basically three times more effective in, in correct diagnosis compared to the individual patients that went into a doctor's office. So just imagine this, right? You could get onto a system, interact with that system. You have to get into the car, drive to the doctor's office, make an appointment, da -da. you could literally instantly have more effective diagnosis through a sort of question and answer process uh, with an AI engine than one that has gone through, you know, seven years of medical diagnosis. Now the AI engine is clearly an amalgam of millions of people's of knowledge, which is amazing. And a doctor can only be an amalgam of their own experience through it. But we always argue, get in a room, uh, give everybody an opportunity to find 10 of these situations and get 10 people to bring these 10 in, put them on a wall and walk around that room and say, that's the new world you're dealing with. Because I think the only way to get this to happen with velocity and accuracy is to use living examples of organizations doing it well to understand what it could look like. And I think unlike the dot-com era, which is very locked in on, build a website, connect some of your front and back office, you know, ERP processes together. This is a far deeper, more holistic re-examination of what service and requirements will look like going forward. And it's impossible for one person to have a vision. So whereas the dot-com era was driven by head of sales, head of IT, and they just got together, this has to be a more collective process. You've got to see that vision in a deeper and wider way. It's a great exercise, you know, because it forces a level of commitment and comprehension that's not available to one of us, but all of us can actually work it out. Long answer, I'm sorry. No, it's perfect. And it segues into, you know, you had a conversation earlier uh, with somebody on communication. And in those rooms where you have all these people, communication is important because, of course, everyone is coming to the table. They've got their own experiences, thoughts, belief patterns, and all these other things. Everyone else in the room has the same thing going on. Sometimes if you are overcommitted to an outcome that you'd like to see, sometimes that can mask your clarity when it comes to seeing everything and being open-minded and all of these suggestions. Because again, this is something where you know, we're looking at something that is so really new to so many of us. You know, we're trying to equate an answer to something that many people, they, they simply don't understand it. And that's okay. It's, it's actually fun from my vantage point because you can go, okay, what can't it do you know and that's and that's where you start struggling like well we're seeing all kinds of things i've seen so much just even in in the entrepreneurial space when it comes to social media copywriting you know there's stuff out there that you know can write you know a book or a blog post for you and it's all ai you just put in some things and you let it rip and away it goes and it utilizes your style of writing it analyzes it's it's absolutely amazing and I worked in healthcare for over a decade, and I'm not shocked because the human brain of a physician or a medical provider is, again, limited based on what they comprehend, the experience they've had, and all of that. But something in AI where you have all the algorithms that could possibly be 
known at this particular point in time, they can actually deduct and go, it could be one of these three things where a human might say, well, it's going to be one of maybe a dozen things or even more. So it's utilizing the technology that way is going to make things better for all of us. Now, of course, you know, the big debate is, you know, AI is going to put everybody out of work. And I'm like, I don't see that. You know, they said the same thing about cars and got more people working on the planet now than ever. There is, there is an interesting dynamic. I mean, all the organizations we, we researched, thousands really, uh, have said, look, those that really get it right, it's sort of 28%, and they have a deep commitment to some variety of AI, basically invest three times as much on reskilling their staff across a range of skill sets than organizations that, you know, yeah, we're into AI a little, but they're not being successful digitally transforming. So there's no doubt the human capital retraining is a really vital part of this. Again, if you look at healthcare, because I think it's one of the best examples, or even retail, right? They are radically re-engineering what you need to do within a healthcare organization physically and digitally. And the same is true in retail. When you look at people like Zara and others that have really elevated the power of that frontline worker really well. What is clear, though, is this is going to be a faster and deeper revolution than the car or even the industrial revolution in Britain from the 1760s than we've ever seen. And, you know, when you look at millennials probably having 15 jobs over their career, that includes the generation compared to boomers, they need to be agile, have what I call AQ, adaptive sort of IQ or, you know, emotional EQ is going to be a really important part of success. And I think it's scary for companies because at one level, they've got this, this sort of tension between get costs out of the system, do 90% of what needs to be done automatically, system can learn to do it. And then they go, well, hold on, what really makes us good as a corporation is innovation, is you know, aptitude to adapt with our staff. And we're sort of sucking air out of employees' desires to work in places if they're just seen as replaceable OPEX. And that's a tough leadership question but most executives are too frightened to answer, even too frightened to put out as a question. I love how you mentioned how organizations that are doing really well are the ones that invest heavily in the training of their employees and it's ongoing. And that's a huge concern in many sectors right now, even without discussing artificial intelligence for a moment. Organizations are having a tough time finding people with the skills that they need because there hasn't been this investment by other organizations to train people on these skills. So you have an employee that's been with you for 20 years, for example, uh, that's more of an exception than the norm anymore, but they do exist. And sometimes those organizations think, well, they've been here forever and we're not going to bother training them. Like you're shortchanging them because they, they're dedicated as an employee. They obviously like it here for some reason. So why aren't you investing in them, making them learn some new things and ask them, you know, what would you like to learn? And when there's new initiatives, say, who, you know, who would like to be part of this committee to research this? And you'll find the ones that are really engaged are absolutely thralled to be able to participate in any type of training. You know, organization that I'm helping out right now, they were starved for training. And it's like, okay, well, we need to implement this and this and this because of the sector they're in. It's like, these are some ongoing things. So let's go outside of the box and train you a little bit on this because these are some things that we see will be coming down in maybe three or four years. But let's get you exposed to it now so when it actually it's implemented, you're hitting the ground running. You already know how to do it. I actually think the idea of training people to be, I'm going to be careful this, the sort of better version of themselves where it matters. In other words, their trainability 
is as important in the commercial world as it has been in the NFL, Major League Baseball, all these other sports, because trainability, the ability to be adaptive and be successful is going to be as critical as the initial skills you walk into. Michael Schraub, uh, who's this MIT Media Lab professor, said to us in the book and on the podcast, the end of the day of average is over. You're going to be hopefully great versions of yourself in different situations. And I think this is one of the huge social struggles we have. We try and fit square pegs and round holes. And what we need to do is change the shape of that peg on an ongoing basis because a you know, square hole could matter now, a round hole could matter in six months, and you know, an oblong could matter later. So if I look, for example, at Zara, classic example in the retail business, you know, their retail assistants used to just stack shelves and, and re-put clothing off. But once they put a tablet in their hand, they actually became living research specialists. So if you touch something, you didn't like it, they're going to ask you in a careful way, hey, what didn't work for you? Material, color, size, history. And they feed that straight back in as a living basis into the system. So the retail experience at Zara, much like Ikea, is radically different than, say, Nordstrom or Sears or other U.S. organizations that, yes, use digital tills but they don't think about a digital ecosystem and the interaction. So I think if organizations hire and don't say, right, for every dollar I give somebody, I need to invest 10, 15 cents on ongoing basic training. They're not going to make their people adaptive enough, not just five, 10 years out, but even I think potentially 18 months, but it's going to change. Yeah, we've seen that. And I, an author not too long ago who works with C-suite executives and his conversation uh, talked about how the ever-changing landscape of the workplace, and you just alluded to it, where changes in the past would take several years to roll out, but now you know, we're seeing them in 18 months or less. Agile organization, again, are going to be the ones that are going to be able to withstand things and because they're constantly investing in new research, new training. How do we make this better? How do we make the experience, you know, for retail, for example, how do we make the experience better for the consumer? They're already out there online ordering from Amazon or whomever and having the convenience of having it delivered. If we want them to come into our store, how do we make that experience worthwhile? And if they do order something online and they want to pick it up in our store because they don't want to wait for shipping or they're afraid it's going to be stolen from their front porch or something like that, have it really easy for the consumer to go into the store and get it without going into a long line and waiting for it. Because the whole key is to make sure it's not frustrating for the employee, the consumer, or anybody else. But there is another dynamic in that. So let's take Walmart, which is the fastest growing by volume and speed of people picking up stuff in the store. So a mother's really busy on a you know Friday night has enough time during the day to order, but doesn't want to be going around the store with screaming kids on a Friday. So she pre-orders and it turns up in boxes or bags for you to pick up in the back of a Walmart. So that's very productive, very helpful, changes the nature of an interaction. But it also means as much as you and I know this, that that drift purchasing that occurs in retail, hey, I came in with a budget of $85, but I'm only going to leave with 300 disappears. So they've then got to think about how do I entice them back into the store? I've done the basic transaction. But what do I need to do to change shelf space and experience that when they come here, it's not just a shopping exercise, it's an experiential interaction. Even Walmart is trying to understand this. And I think this is, again, this is the AI issue at its very best. Yes, it can replace basic functionality, but the complexity of these business decisions and the interactive nature of how we go into stores and talk to people is going to become exponentially more powerful. 
I think, in a very short time. It's interesting to watch Walmart because, you know, they're known for their supply chain and how they're able to move so many goods across continents and, and obviously oh in North America. It's it's amazing what they can do. And they have been one has constantly refined that supply chain and how things get shipped. And Amazon's doing, you know, a job too with, you know, their prime and everything else. And I basically ordered some things from Amazon this morning. It'll be at my condo tonight. Now, yeah. yes, I could have gone to the store, but it's a convenient thing. And I live in a condo, so it goes to security. So I don't have to worry about front porch or anything. I just go down there and sign it out and, and bring it back upstairs. I didn't have to physically leave my place or stand in line or deal with anything else. And at the timing of this recording, you know, as we, you know, I'm sure you're well aware of as well, we've got this coronavirus situation going on, which is still in its early days and we don't really know how how things are going to shape out we hope it doesn't get bad to the point where we're all quarantined our house and afraid to go outside and have to walk around in a bubble I, I, i don't anticipate it getting to that state but this is one of those things where ai you know potentially able to catch these things much earlier on so we can mitigate things like this from spreading and that's just you know one example i know we keep picking on healthcare, but that's that's one area where i think okay we we catch this early enough. Okay, where where's it originating? Who's got it? All of these things, and it's it's amazing to see organizations, you know, do some different things, and especially ones that are working really well. Because again, Walmart's supply chain has been great. They're constantly tweaking it. They're like, okay, how can we make this better? And the issue really is it's this collapse. When we talk about this in the book. These twenty one factors that people can self measure, but it's this collapse between supply and demand time chains. Uh, that I think is critical. So yes, it's not so much the supply chain into Walmart. It's much more about, I think, the supply chain connecting with demand for the consumer. And this is equally the case in business to business, right? So if you're a huge shipping company like Mask, the biggest in the world that moves ships around, you're going to say, hey, what do I do with this redundant time where these ships are on the ocean? And maybe I could resell products in these carrying containers at a better rate when I get nearer the destination than maybe I took them on early on, is that everything starts to become infinitely more fluid, which is why adaptability is in itself one of the key metrics of how successful an organization could be with AI. We finished some work with IBM recently, and it clearly, you know, you can algorithmically produce the result, but it said, look, organizations that keep AI close to them physically, uh, technically, collaboratively, are just infinitely more successful at avoiding failure than organizations that just let it hang in a cloud and don't connect it into this sort of ecosystem. So I think we always talked about supply and demand chains and supply and demand time delay. We've now got to assume there's no time delay between supply and demand. Demand drives supply, supply can drive demand. And it's running things almost like a fluid stock market that I think is the future. And that's pretty scary for people when they were like, yeah, let's have an inventory with 20 turns when increasingly you're going to need to have 40, 50, 60, even 100 type turns in a year for it to work. I'm seeing it even in the airline industry with oh, yeah. them using AI as far as pricing their flights. And it's, you can look and even, you know, you can obviously, it, it picks it up on, you know, the cookies on your browser and all that kind of stuff is one thing they do too. But I found, and I just did a recent test on this where I checked a flight in the morning and I checked a flight at night made sure that you know my there was no cookies cached private browser all the good stuff even different computer even used a different ip address all of these things and the price was different i'm like okay what's changed 
and the available seats didn't vary by much. But again, it for them, they're so fluid with their pricing that they can maximize and go, okay, wow, we're seeing a bit of demand on this flight for some reason. Okay, well, let's let's capitalize on that and add an extra $30 or whatever mm-hmm. to it. And from an organization standpoint, they, they get that flow. You start making additional revenue just by having something shift things based on the instantaneous supply and demand meeting up with each other. It completely changes the game when it comes to inventory tracking. Uh, I love the analogy you gave where, you know, there's a ship of products and all of a sudden you're like, you know what, it makes more sense for us to take box 422 and move that over to this location and that one and have another box that has similar things ship the other way because we can make a better profit margin on that box. The box is still going to arrive where it's supposed to at the time it's supposed to be there, but you've shifted things around. It's it's absolutely amazing. You know, our brains can't quite comprehend what the limits are of this, if there are any. Let's assume there are no limits because you could argue, you know, what used to be discoursed as just in time now becomes before time. In other words, it tells you what to do and it's there. So there is this interesting massage point between where supply and demand meet each other in instant time and where one starts to slightly predict the, the dynamic of another and almost becomes like highly moving hydrogen atoms around a space. And it's, this is the thing about adaptability. When you look at AI, I mean, there's no doubt Look, the work with the, the quantum systems at Google have now built environments where they can play multiple games at world-class levels with each other. They're way past human capability, not just in chess or Go, but a whole range of other games. The issue is how, how do you apply that power ethically uh, to the way you run your business? Because there's no doubt if you look at stock markets, you know, 97% of all transactions are done by machines. They're not touched by humans. They just have to set the rules in place so that machines don't collapse the system. 2008, 1987 in the UK. That, that becomes a different management discussion and it often paralyzes people in that process, much like, as you, we talked about beforehand, Henry Ford said, now I'm going to find a way of making cars here that's super efficient, you know, just do a better horse. But now I can get these things out 200 times faster than normal and actually with an incredible level of reliability, it could revolutionize every industry. So imagine you're in the sports and entertainment business and you're coming to a stadium and AI recognizes your face. It's able to diagnose what sort of mood you're in and the guest person that gets you in on the cell phone says, hey, John, um, glad to see you wearing, you know, Falcons clothing today. Uh, we also noticed you wearing old clothing from three or four years ago. Julio Jones's new shirt's actually available on um, the store that's 25 feet away from you. And actually, if you'd like, I've got your credit card details. I'll just knock it on and deliver it with a, with a bag halfway through the game if he scores a touchdown. We are not far from that world. We are really maybe two, three years away from it. Yeah, I was just thinking about that too. You know, you walk in. They recognize you and they say, okay, Mike usually orders this food, this beer, yes, this thing. Yes. And all of a sudden, all I do is I go sit down and all of a sudden the someone is bringing it to me and they hand it to me. I'm like, you know, wow, it's concierge service. They, it, you know, everybody loves going into an establishment, whether it's a we restaurant, a bar, anything like that. And you walk in, you know, the, the TV show Cheers, where everybody knows your name. Well, you... People like that experience, and with AI, it's making that experience available to everybody. Imagine you go into the stadium and you rub your tummy deliberately, or you, you know, use your hand to chomp on, and then you stick your thumb up. Right? You've basically made an order at that point. It, it, we are so close to this, and I think what people don't fully recognize 
is it's the human interaction with the stuff that's going to be complicated. The technology takes care of itself. But putting people in a room and saying, look, here are 100 examples of what is and is nearly happening in your industry is the only way to initiate a rational conversation. Otherwise, you have these crazies that run around saying no, these crazies that run around saying yes, and it just becomes a conflict that isn't designed to bring the organization forward further. So if I look at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium in London, this is basically the newest English EPL soccer stadium, they make 1.8 million pounds of profit on high-end food at every game. Profit, right? Two and a half million dollars. Wow. Because they've already started to use AI to recognize patterns of behavior uh, inside these sort of luxury boxes. Uh, and therefore they've worked out when the best time is to ask, hey, do you want more? Do you want less? Do you want different? So their humans are a much more educated format to make a decision, sort of like a Navy SEAL in combat. And secondly, they're using it to effectively deliver the food, design the food, supply, manage the supply chain, so they know exactly how many burgers they're going to sell within a range. They never run out of premium Wagyu burgers, right? And, you know, wastage in the food industry is the biggest profit killer. Their wastage ratios are like 1% versus maybe 15 or 20. So their application of AI in a real-life situation has worked extraordinarily well. It's just how do we get people start recognizing these combinations to be successful. That's amazing. What team plays at that stadium again? Tottenham Hotspurs. Okay, so I'm guessing, um, you know, beer sales probably increase if Liverpool comes in and starts winning, you know. I, I, don't, I don't know, but what's interesting <laughs> is you can find out. That, the, the fantastic thing about it is you can test and measure hypothesis with AI and model things out extraordinarily fast without having to sort of massively supplement human knowledge because you're creating all these moments anyway so you may say for example the best time to sell beer at this level is between you know 320 and 345 if tottenham doesn't have a goal yes that is the power of this knowledge you have to apply it uh, but it does become very interesting when someone's laying out two three hundred dollars for a ticket and your real margin comes on the extra 75 or 150 dollars on food being able to do it in an extremely elegant, highly personalized way. It's absolutely amazing. And I am completely excited about what is going to unfold over the next, I'd say five years. Not, you know, we used to say, what's going to look, world look like in the next you know, 10 years? Even in the next five years, it, it's going to be absolutely mind boggling. And it's going to be absolutely amazing if you know, and I'm one of those ones that is completely open to it because I know it improves the experience of of living and opportunities, and it just and I, I I'm I'm a junkie when it comes to innovation and people doing things differently. And we you know we think about our smartphones and the fact that you and I are having a conversation you know over the internet and. I remember AOL and dial-up and, and but even before that and getting up to turn the station on the television and now I can pretty much watch anything I'd ever want to watch on my phone or a tablet. And I've seen this in my lifetime. In a small portion of your lifetime, which makes it even more remarkable because we sit at this conjecture between, you know, the way we used to define ourselves, the stories that define ourselves and the frameworks have radically changed in the last 10 or 15 years. You know, Generation Z, Millennials are the largest portion of the global workforce starting this January. All they've ever known is a period of constant technological change. There's no reason why they're going to slow down. So the argument probably is as they stay, start taking charge, it's going to go faster and faster. So buckle up, everybody. It's going to be a fun ride. Michael, I've loved our conversation today. Uh, where can people find out more about you and this awesome work you're doing? 
Yeah, well, find uh, find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I do this podcast for Forbes called Futures in Focus. It's one of any two they do, and it looks at the world of 2030. And I always actually am interested because there is a clearer pathway to the next 10 years than we've ever seen. Catch me uh, at ink.digital so you can email me whenever you want. From that, I think it's great. This is a great conversation for people to have in every office every day. So I'm glad you're actually stimulating it. Um, and I appreciate you and, and thank you for you know, coming on the show to talk about this because, again, I think our world is going to be absolutely amazing in a very short period of time. And there's no limits and we should do everything possible not to limit uh, what it could do. And I, I look forward to, to watching and, and, and enjoying you know, this, this journey that we're all on. So, again, Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And everybody just have a great day. Hey, it's Michael again. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. If you're like many people, you're dealing with some significant stress and possibly approaching burnout. I know how you feel. In 2009, my burnout led to a year of worst-case scenarios. I do not want that to happen to you. If you go to breakfastleadership.com, you can register for a free webinar on burnout prevention, as well as get as a free checklist to have successful mornings. Start off each day the right way. Again, that's at breakfastleadership.com. Also, since you are a loyal podcast listener, I'm asking you to like, rate, and review my podcast on iTunes. I look at all the reviews and appreciate your comments, and it helps other potential listeners discover the content I have on the show. I appreciate you, and thanks again for listening.